We're going to continue on in the book of Ezekiel, and so we're going to be looking at Ezekiel chapter 36. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. Some of these words will doubtless be familiar to many of you. We're going to read from verse 16 down to the end of verse 38. So Ezekiel chapter 36, being at verse 16, this is the word of God. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, when the people of Israel were living in their own land, they defiled it by their conduct and their actions. Their conduct was like a woman's monthly uncleanness in my sight. So I poured out my wrath on them because they had shed blood in the land and because they had defiled it with their idols. I dispersed them among the nations and they were scattered through the countries. I judged them according to their conduct and their actions. And wherever they went among the nations, they profaned my holy name. For it was said of them, these are the Lord's people, and yet they had to leave his land. I had concern for my holy name, which the people of Israel profaned among the nations where they had gone. Therefore say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people, and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and make it plentiful. I will not bring famine upon you. I will increase the fruit of the trees and the crops of the fields, so that you will no longer suffer disgrace among the nations because of famine. Then you will remember your evil ways and wicked deeds, and you will loathe yourselves for your sins and detestable practices. I want you to know that I am not doing this for your sake, declares the Sovereign Lord. Be ashamed and disgraced of your, for your conduct, people of Israel. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. On the day I cleanse you from all your sins, I will resettle your towns and the ruins will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass through it. They will say, this land that was laid waste has become like the Garden of Eden. The cities that were lying in ruins, desolate and destroyed, are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations around you that remain will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt what was destroyed and have replanted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will do it. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Once again, I will yield to Israel's plea and do this for them. I will make their people as numerous as sheep, as numerous as the flocks for offerings at Jerusalem during her appointed festivals. So will the ruined cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I 
am the Lord. One hundred years ago, which is a reasonably short amount of time, really, uh, given the eternal nature of God, the eleventh hour, the eleventh day of the eleventh month, the armistice was brought into effect, and a hundred years later we remember. And so part of our worship to God this morning is we're going to stand as we are able, and this hour we are going to remember and we're going to pray, we're going to ask God uh, to be merciful to us, to bring peace to the world, and after uh, a full minute of silent prayer, I will lead us in prayer together. So I invite you to stand as you are able uh, for a minute of silence. Our Father, as we remember in the, the ways that we do, we want to direct our thoughts more than anything to you, that you are the sovereign Lord of history. And although we do not understand uh, many of the things that take place, we do know that in your power and in your wisdom, you are able to bring together all things, including our sin, for good, and to accomplish your wise ends and purposes. And so, Lord, we look to you, and we, we marvel that you are a God who uh, is in control, even when things seem chaotic. That you are a God who still sits on the throne of the universe, even when things seem to spiral out of control. And so, Lord, we commit ourselves to you, not through sight, but through faith. Lord, we would ask that you would do a great work in our generation, that you would awaken sinners to know you, that you would revive and purify your church. And that we will see great societal and global change. We, we long for the day when wars have truly ceased. Lord Jesus, we know that you are the Prince of Peace. Uh, we know that your first advent was 2,000 years ago. And yet there has been so much violence and so much bloodshed in, those, in that time. Lord, we, we long for you to return. It is our desire for you to come and to consummate the kingdom. And so we ask that you will do that. 
We ask that you will work by your spirit in this world to to bring a great awakening of sinners, but we also ask, Lord Jesus, that you will come and bring the new heavens and new earth. Uh, We want to experience that state where sin is finally put away, where war will never happen because war is unthinkable, because human hearts have been changed. You can do this work. Even now you can change hearts, as the prophet Ezekiel says. So be with us as we look to your word. Help us to honor you. And Father, do what is best, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, if you have been uh, reading through the book of Ezekiel, or if you are just familiar with the content, uh, you know the book begins, as we looked at last week, with this incredible vision. Uh, this vision in chapter 1 which isn't even a vision of the Lord, and it's not a vision of the glory of the Lord. It's not even an appearance, or it's not even a vision of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. It's, it's a vision of the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And that, being so far removed from actually seeing God, uh, just seeing the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, is enough for the prophet Ezekiel to fall down as if he's dead. That glorious presence leaves the temple in Ezekiel 10 and departs because of the uncleanness and the sin and the defilement of the temple, particularly through idolatry and bloodshed. God literally moves out of his home. He he departs the nation so the Babylonians can come in. The Babylonians can destroy Jerusalem and raise and burn the temple to the ground. Now, the question then that anyone who's thoughtful is asking after all of this time in redemptive history is what needs to happen in order for this covenant to work? That is, you've had Abraham called out of uh, Babylonia. You have the covenant with Abraham, all these phenomenal promises. You have the deliverance in the Exodus. You have the Sinai events. You have the period of the judges, but then God gives a godly king in David. The monarchy starts to implode over time. The people of the nation gets worse and worse and worse. And eventually, they're exiled right back to Babylon, right back to where Abraham was called out of in the first place. They've thrown away all of this revelation and all, all of the covenant, all of God's saving promises and acts of performance has all been left behind. And the question is, What needs to happen for these people to get it? What event needs to take place for human beings to be able to be covenant partners with God? Every step along the way, in every era, every epoch, every societal configuration, the people are failing to honor the Lord. Every time, all through Old Testament history, every case. This text tells you, This text gives you the answer. If it's just looking for more education, if it's looking for more uh, sort of economic parity or a better health care system, fairer taxation and representation and all the rest, you will never actually get to the heart of the problem. The heart of the problem is not external societal configuration. The heart of the problem is inside of every human being. And so that's what this text deals with. This text teaches, this is a new new covenant parallel to Jeremiah 31, 
where, where Jeremiah, where the Lord reveals to the prophet Jeremiah, the old covenant doesn't work, not because there's a problem with the old covenant, the problem is with you. Not, not the most seeker-sensitive message. You are the problem. You know, there's nothing wrong with the law, it's that your heart can't keep the law. So God says, what I'm going to have to do now is I'm going to have to work inside of you. I've worked on tablets of stone. I've worked externally in all kinds of ways. Miracles, redemption, it doesn't matter. Everything I do outside of you doesn't affect your heart. So I'm going to forgive you for your sins, and I'm going to write my law inside your heart and mind. I'm going to engrave it, not on tablets of stone. I'm going to engrave it right inside of your breast. Then you will be moved and motivated internally to follow me. Because external law isn't cutting it at all. This passage in Ezekiel is sort of the Ezekiel parallel to Jeremiah 31. The heart of stone taken out and the heart of flesh put in its place. But it's desperately important to understand sort of the context here. Why is God doing this? Well, verses 16 through 23 tell you. The people have been defiling the land by their conduct and their actions. Verse 18 says, I poured out my wrath on them because they had shed blood in the land and because they had defiled it with their idols. These two things go together in the prophets all the time. All the time. Idolatry is the worship of false gods and bloodshed. So this is sort of the, the peg. Uh, this is shorthand. This is a shorthand summary for everything that's going on. There's a lot more than just these things, but it can, all, it can almost be sort of just summarized this way. You're worshipping false gods, and actually there's a connection here. Because you're worshipping false gods, other texts will tell you, you're engaging in all these abhorrent practices. When, when your gods are bloodthirsty, it's no surprise that you shed blood. Uh, when your gods are immoral, it's no surprise that you are immoral. You know, when, when your gods don't care about sort of social justice, if they can be propitiated with just a little bit of an offering, then you can go in and rip off anyone you want. You can trample the poor down and you'll get more than enough money that you need to come and give the, the god or the deity a little token out of all the wealth that you've exploited and received from other people. So the bloodshed is the social injustice. It, it, it's literal murder in some cases, but it's more expansive than that. It's depriving people of livelihood. It's taking from them what they need to survive. Taking from them a fair day's work for, or rather a fair day's wage for a fair day's work. It's removing from them their daily bread. It's taking sometimes quite literally the cloak off their back. So God says, I was filled with wrath. I'm punishing you for turning to false gods. That's sort of the vertical relationship with God. But also your treatment of other people. That's the horizontal relationship with others. Bloodshed and aisles. So I disperse them, I scatter them, I judge them. This is the climactic covenant curse. We've seen this a lot over the last number of months as we've worked through the Old Testament mainly together. That the great, uh, the great curse in the covenant was if you break the covenant, there will be exile. You will be removed from the land. You will be spewed out of the land in the same way the land is spewing out the Canaanites. If you act like them, you will be treated like them. There's no favoritism that way. And so if you're going to worship the same deities and engage in the same practices, the land will vomit you out the way that it vomited out the Canaanites. And that's what's happened. Here, people are in exile. They've gone to Babylon. But what God is saying is, everywhere you go, not only did you disgrace my name in Israel or in Jerusalem, everywhere you go, you're giving me a bad reputation because 
People see you and they say, oh, the Lord wasn't strong enough to keep these people in, in, in his own land. You know, Yahweh, the Lord, lost his, lost his battle, his own court had vanished. These are his people, and he couldn't even keep them in their own land. How weak must he be? And so God says, you have profaned my holy name. And that's what motivates God here. This is actually very interesting. Because this is often not how we think of missions, evangelism, and salvation. That we often, we often in theology, maybe not theoretically, but practically, are highly anthropological. That is, we, we end up defaulting to doing things out of motivation for people, for human beings. That's good. We ought to love our neighbors, ourselves, and all of the rest. So if people need the gospel, we ought to tell them the gospel. But God does not act to save these people for their sake in the first instant. He acts to save them for the sake of his own name. That is, this new covenant is for the sake of the name of God before it is for the sake of any individual who benefits from it. Reverence for the name of God comes first. In that sense, it's like how Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The first concern, there's actually a couple others, your will be done, your kingdom come. Your first concerns are all theocentric, all centered on God. God, I want your name to be holy. I want your will to be done. I want your kingdom to come. You, 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 you align yourself theocentrically before you start asking for things like your daily bread or even the forgiveness of your own sin. The reason we pray like that is because that's what God is like. God is concerned more for the holiness of his name than for our own daily bread. We need to make sure we understand that. I had concern for my holy name which the people of Israel profaned among the nations where they had gone. So the Lord says this a few times in verses 22 through 23. This is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake. That's, that's pretty clear. This isn't for you that I am going to do these things. But for what? For the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which you have profaned. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. Now that's very interesting. Because what it means is that God, who is going to be seen as holy, is going to be seen as holy through his people. But it is not for their sake. It is for the glory of his holy name. Human beings will be the instrument through which the holiness of God is displayed. But the point isn't their good, it's God's name. You, you can't read this text. I mean, God repeats it so often. It is not for your sake. It is not for your sake. You might, you, you might begin to wonder if, if human beings are, are pretty quick to, to take things as if it's all about us. Right? Uh, the, the Bible will repeat these things numerous times just to make sure you understand this is not all about you. This is about God. I am proved holy through you before their eyes. But the problem is the people. 
That's the problem. So how is it that God can possibly be proved holy through an unholy people? How can God's name be revered through an unholy people? Well, it can't be. So God is going to do something. Because people are clearly incapable of doing this on their own. All of the centuries of redemptive history have proved that. 4, verse 24. I will take you out of the nations. So this is the, the undoing of exile. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. The land that their sin drove them out of. You're going back there. But why, how do we know that the same thing's not just going to happen again? Won't history repeat itself? Well, it would, except for this. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. Uh, this is the, sort of the, the priest, this is drawn from the priestly ordination, where water and blood was sprinkled on the priest to cleanse them. This is symbolic of, of cleansing. And so God is saying, what I'm going to do is I'm going to treat you like priests. I'm going to wash you symbolically. So you're going to be clean from head to toe. Then uh, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And this is the key. This is the only way that it will work. Just like Jer- the parallel with Jeremiah 31. You have a heart of stone, Israelites. That's why this doesn't work. But what I am going to do, God says, is I am going to to reach inside of you and I'm going to transplant a new heart in the place of that heart of stone. I'm going to give you a, a living, vibrant, beating heart. I'm going to fill you with a new center of being. That's what the word heart really means here. I'm going to give you a whole new center of being. I'm going to transform you from the inside out, from, from, some, from people who were not interested in honoring me as the holy God to people who I can be seen as holy through by their conduct, by their actions, by their thoughts, by their love. I'm going to change you from the inside out. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. It is now, again, the law isn't external. The law is internal. Prompted to honor God, not by external law code, but to honor God through the freedom that comes from following the Spirit who guides by love. That's what God's going to do. So then you'll come back to live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people. And I will be your God. That is, again in summary, the great covenant blessing You will be my people. I will be your God. It's all bound up in that relationship. That's the pinnacle blessing and experience of the new heavens and new earth at the end of Revelation. Not the streets of gold. That's a metaphor anyway. But relationship with God. 
We will know him intimately and fully and thoroughly. He will be proud. I use that word advisedly. God will be proud to identify us as his people on that day. He will be our God. We will be his people. Because he has changed our hearts. Because he has worked inside of us to make us the people he wants us to be. Now note, verse 29, I will save you from all your uncleanness. This is God's work. Then I'm going to bless you. So I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you my spirit. You will be my people. I will be your God. I'll cleanse you. I'll forgive you. And then I'm going to bless you in all kinds of ways. I'm going to pour out blessings of grain, and, and there will no longer be famine. There will, you will be, there will be fruit in the trees, crops of the field. There will no longer be disgrace. Now notice this, verse 31. Then you will remember your evil ways and wicked deeds, and will loathe yourselves for your sins and intestinal practices. I want you to know that I'm not doing this for your sake. The sequence here is vitally important. We often tend to cast it that if you repent, God will give you a new heart. But this text doesn't give that order at all. This text is quite clear. Then you will repent. When does the repentance come? After the new heart has already been given. God needs to work in us to give us a new, to create a new heart, to put his spirit in us, to, to forgive us and cleanse us, to bring us into a covenant relationship, and then to bless us before we will repent. There is, there is a primacy, both uh, sort of logically and in importance, there's a primacy to the work of God. The, the work of God comes first. And, and if you have any doubt about that, you just, just keep Reading the Old Testament. People are never going to get this. Ever. Unless God works. And, and so God is the one who is wise. So often in this text, this is, what, this is what the Lord says. Then they will know that I am the Lord, declares the Sovereign Lord. Verse 33, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Verse 37, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Verse 32, I want you to know that I'm not doing this for your sake, declares the Sovereign Lord. The, the accent here is deliberate. Who is the one who's on the throne? Who is the one who's reigning? Who is the one who's sovereign? It's not the human being, it's God. God is the one who says, I, I'll work inside of your heart if I want to. You're not going to keep me out. I've accessed every part of you. I, I can give you tablets of stone, I can do that, but I can also, I can also reach right in, into the center of your being and, and, and touch it in a way that no one else can. I can I can change you. I can love you. Right in your heart. I'll give you a new one and I'll renovate it so it's spacious enough for me to live in. Because I'm moving in, God says. Ezekiel 10 said that he moved out of the temple. He, he left the temple to move into the new heart. I will put my spirit in you. That's God himself. 
I'm moving into you. Your heart is where I want to live. And God can actually do that. God can actually take up residence in our heart and live inside of us. The rest of the chapter talks about the blessings that attend this. The desolation is undone. The ruin is restored. All the years of famine are gone, remembered only to, con- only to contrast the greater glory and joy of fruitful harvest. The city that was desolate and destroyed is now fortified, built up, strengthened, and inhabited. People live in it. Then, the last phrase of the verse 38, then they will know that I am the Lord. That's the goal. That's the point. I will do all of this so that you know that I am the Lord. Now, the other problem, though, is that all of this seems so utterly hopeless There's no way at all that it's actually going to take place. So, you're given this incredible vision of what God is going to do. You say, but it's it's too good to be true. I mean, how can this actually happen? Is there any way that God can bring life to the dead? Is there any way that God can actually work in a circumstance that's this bad, that's this hopeless? It's in chapter 37. Again, you remember when whoever was writing the book of Ezekiel, um, Ezekiel himself likely wasn't the author, they didn't take their their stylus and and write a big 37 in the margin and then keep going. So all of these numbers that we have, chapters and verses, that's for our organization to be able to find things because we, we just don't memorize the text thoroughly enough to be able to locate passages quickly, so we have to look things up uh, using the numerical code. Uh, but so you're not supposed to think about numerical code, you're supposed to just keep going. So the very next thing, without any break at all, is the hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me up by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of the valley. This is continuity. You don't break after chapter 36, you keep reading. He set me in the middle of a valley, it was full of bones. Now you've heard this one before. There's a, there's a Sunday school song about this that you can all sing. He led me back and forth among them. I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. So this, this, this is actually accenting quantity and quality. There are a ton of bones. This whole place is filled with bones, and they are very dry. Like the word is bleached, um, like a, you know, a, a, a skeleton in the desert. Over time, those bones get bleached white. They're as dead and dry as you can possibly Imagine. This isn't just mainly dead. This is really dead. This is fully dead. And the Lord says, He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? Wait, well. And that's when you pause and you wonder, like, is this a trick question? Right? And the answer is phenomenal. I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Because the answer is no. But you're dealing with God. So now you're not sure. Can these bones live? Of course not! Except you're the sovereign Lord. 
If I was talking to any other being, I would say no. But with you? Lord, I don't know. Only you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Now that doesn't make all that much sense. They don't have ears, right? Oh, what's going on here? Uh, although this is not here, certainly. But this has probably been a passage that's given many preachers a great deal of encouragement over the years as they're trying to get messages out to various audiences. Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. To bones! I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Same phrase. Then you will know that I am the Lord. This is the equivalent of of literally going into a graveyard and God says, "Can Can these buried bodies live? How about you preach to them? So he does. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound. The bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared in them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Now you need to know, in both Greek New Testament and Hebrew Old Testament, this is the, the Hebrew is the language we're dealing with now. This is a very simple thing. The word in Hebrew for breath, wind, and spirit, just like in Greek, is the same. They use one word. So here, there's, there's, there's always these layers in translation. We're trying to figure out, is this breath, wind, or spirit? And often there's an intentional overlap of those categories. So for God, his breath is the wind of the spirit. God breathes out his spirit. And so this breath, we've already told you in, right in the previous chapter, I will put my spirit in you. You have these bodies now, but there's no spirit in them. There's no breath in them. So then he said, prophesy to the breath. Verse 9, prophesy to the man and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come breath from the four winds. So now you have this sort of this connection. Breath and wind brought together. Come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. So you're being told here is that God, not only can he take it a heart of stone and put it in a heart of flesh, he doesn't even need a heart. He's in a valley full of desiccated bones. He can start there. He can assemble bones together through the wind, and then he can clothe them with flesh. He can create beings that live He's a God who brings life from death. He's a God who brings life from hopeless death, long past death. Where, you know, where there's, where there's no possibility of CPR, there's, there's no heart to press, there, there's no lungs to breathe into. Now God assembles these bones and clothes them with flesh, breathes his spirit into them, and they stand up. And they're not tottering. They're not weak and sickly. They are a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, 
These bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. So this valley of the dry bones is, is sort of an analogy, it's a prophetic vision nearing the case of the people. They feel like they have no hope. They feel like they're dead. They feel like this is, they're, they're utterly hopeless. There cannot be anything good in their future. Our hope is gone. Everything's dried up. Fruitfulness is no more. We're cut off. Therefore, prophesy to them and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says, my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. So the graves are exile. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you, breath, wind, and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. This is for God's sake. Uh, you, you, you don't think there's any hope at all? Well, there isn't. In you. But there is because there's a God who is the sovereign Lord who can reach right inside of you and touch your heart. Who can make the dead live. Who can transform you from the inside out. So that if you were to ask any psychologist, any sociologist, any expert in the world, can this change? They'd say no. But when God asks, can there be hope? Can there be life? You say, oh, sovereign Lord. It looks pretty dead to me. It doesn't seem like there's much hope to me. But you alone know. And God says, that's right, just watch. Because you'll know too. <laughs> you'll know in the end. You'll see what I can do. You'll see the work of my hand, then you will know that I am the sovereign Lord. Oh, may God do it. May God do it. He still is today the sovereign Lord. He is. He still is changing lives. He still is making the dead have hope. Not always in their time frame. Not always according to precisely what they desire, but he is. He's still changing hearts. That's why we praise him. That's why we honor him. That's why we follow him no matter what. Let's not look at the dry bones. Let's look to the God who gives breath, who gives life. Baptism is a sign that God has given someone new covenant life. And so we are going to be celebrating uh, baptism uh, this morning. A couple other people who uh, are going to be baptized at a later date. We're very excited for all of this, God's work in our church. So we're, I'm going to go and uh, just prepare uh, for our baptism this morning. I believe there's going to be a special piece uh, of music that you can uh, worship along with. And then we'll celebrate uh, the Lord's work of giving new hearts through the waters of baptism.